Welcome to my podcast, Tricks of the Trademark. This is Eric Pelton with another podcast episode in which I share advice and experience based on my 20 years of working with clients around the world to protect and strengthen their brands. Welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Tricks of the Trademark. It's special for a couple of reasons. The main reason is that we have a guest today, Brad Phillips, uh, the CEO of Throughline Group, LLC. And this is the first time that I've done an interview-style podcast on my own podcast. I've appeared on many others, so I'm very excited about that. And it's extra special because Brad and Throughline are clients of Eric M. Pelton and Associates. And it's more meaningful and special because Brad and I have actually known each other for, we'll just say several decades, quite some time. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to him and get his insights on business, communications, and brands. And I think this is going to be a great discussion. So, Brad, welcome. Thank you. From riding big wheels together to appearing on your podcast decades later, this has been quite a journey. Yes, our mothers will be so pleased to Indeed. listen to this, right? Um, so we're recording this in the last week of May 2020, of course, in the midst of the coronavirus uh, crisis, as places, uh, some more than others, are beginning to reopen. And we're, you know, I don't really like the phrase, but there's not really a substitute of approaching some sort of new normal or whatever the next future will be until there's a vaccine. Um, and I thought, what a great opportunity to have you here. Um, can you give us some brief background about what you and Throughline Group do for your clients and customers? Sure, our company specializes in two things, media training and public speaking training. So for companies or organizations now that are doing external events, external speaking, whether it's a, an in-person conference that's suddenly gone virtual or are doing media interviews from their living rooms or in some cases bedrooms, our job is to help them both with the substance of the message and also the physical delivery of how the message is delivered to their audiences. And as you can imagine, the complexity of the message they're trying to deliver at this moment while both being reassuring to their audiences, but also somewhat straightforward about the challenges that they face is as important as it's ever been. Yeah, and I want to pick up right there. I think you got to a key point, and that's something that I noticed. We, I, I'm sure lots of people noticed in those first few days and weeks when the pandemic was announced and schools started shutting and governments and businesses started shutting, oh, it, it seemed like every store online that you'd ever bought something from, every newsletter you ever subscribed to was sending out a message. Some of them were really good. Some of them were really bad. People were trying to communicate about what was going on. And I think your, you know, experience dealing with communications and media training, I'd love to hear some of like, what are some of the really, you know, it's it's difficult to say good in, in these circumstances, but some of the ways that people handled the crisis and the impact in a communications realm that really you think went well. Well, to your initial point, I think you're exactly right. Brands in those early hours sent out the emails talking about how 
they planned on dealing with their customers or vendors or employees during that initial time of tumult. And within a few days, it almost started becoming cliche. Like, do I really need to hear from the clothing brand about how they're going to handle shipping blue jeans to my house? Probably not. Uh, but what you started to see was the companies that got it right, the organizations that got it right, started marrying what it is that they do with their response to the current events. And there are some brands that I thought did a really exceptional job of doing that. Uh, Eric, in your backyard, you have uh, one of the nation's greatest chefs, Chef Jose Andres, who owns Haleo in Washington, D.C., and many other restaurants. He has an organization called World Central Kitchen. And I looked this up shortly before we started taping this in late May. His organization has served over 10 million fresh meals to students, families in need related to COVID. So that's an example of a company that just made a very fast pivot to doing things right. They're far from alone. Lyft donated free rides to uh, frontline healthcare workers. You saw Netflix setting up a fund for people within the industry who suddenly found themselves furloughed or out of work. You saw luxury perfume brands suddenly pivoting their factories that were making these high-end perfumes and colognes suddenly started making hand sanitizer. And so I think more than the words of the communication, it was the action of what those companies actually did. And they were integral to what the brand actually did. They didn't look like they were being opportunistic and kind of just trying to be seen as doing a good deed, but it was directly related to what their day-to-day -day industries were. Now, what about um, some businesses that you know, went about doing their everyday course of business. Like you say, you're, they're a clothing company or a, or a store. Do you still think it's important for them to have special communications with their customers about um, the times that we're living in that, you know, you can't avoid thinking about every, every interaction? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think that's especially relevant for companies that are trying to reassure a nervous public about their safety protocols. So as a good example, our local pizza shop, uh, not far from me in New York where I live, every time they deliver a pizza, perhaps this is happening where you are as well, now has a sticker that goes over the pizza box and talks about some of their sanitary um, protocols to make sure that they're keeping their customers safe. So that's just in time real information that you could find on their website that you could be reassured when you get the product to your house. So there's many ways of being able to communicate in a way that is relevant and direct without having to go to that now cliched version of sending out the email uh, talking about that. You could do it uh, in the store itself. And I think one thing that's often overlooked is the importance of internal communications, that businesses are talking to their frontline employees, customer service reps, who often ultimately are the ones who are delivering important messages to customers just in that moment of need. So rather than doing a blast email to a big list where you may have 98% of people who haven't interacted with that brand in the past three years, they're able to do it in a much more time relevant manner. Yes, that's that's truly important and uh, valuable as well. I really like your pizza um, story. I had a similar experience I think with a pizza company where they had a label like that. And then I had a, a what I thought was a wonderful experience ordering from a local restaurant that just put a little handout in the bag that said, thank you for your business. We appreciate you. We're a small business. Every order counts. And, you know, I, I even get a little emotional just thinking about that because really that's why I ordered for them. I didn't need the meal at that moment. People are doing things, choosing brands, you know, for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's, yeah, 
I need a new pair of shoes because my old ones worn out. But sometimes it's, yeah, I'm supporting this business because they're down the street from me. And I, I see these people, you know, walking, walking, uh, to work from work. They're part of the community and I want to support them because they support our community. And so those messages really, really can make a difference. I think in, in strengthening the bond with clients, it's really an opportunity. Absolutely. And I think it goes straight to the point. One of the criticisms of the federal government response is that they underplayed the threat early on, whether it was dismissing this as uh, just contained with 15 people who had it. It was unlikely to become a much larger problem here in the United States. Of course, as we're taping this, we're just crossing the 100,000 death milestone. One of the biggest criticisms is that if you tell people what the facts are, what's likely to come and how they can deal with those facts, they're likely to take that information in and be appreciative of the fact that you are treating them with dignity with the information that they need to be able to make plans for their life. And what you're talking about, that small business being very honest, very direct about the plight that they're facing, the hardship that they as a small business are facing, the gratitude that, they're face, that they have for their customers is a way of deepening loyalty long-term. And it's also acknowledging something that we all know is true. I think if there's one thing that, one buzzword that I think has kind of lost its meaning, it's authenticity when it comes to communications. And what you're seeing there is a rare example of real authenticity. Somebody being willing to be vulnerable and saying, we're in a tough place right now. And it's people like you that are helping us keep people employed and keep the light, light on and thank you and and boy what a great lesson for businesses of all sizes yeah yeah and it's right you know authenticity i would had you asked me six months ago authenticity i would associate with being in person and being a close connection right and so we're having to find new ways to make that connection but it, it's still possible it still is out there another thing i've seen um with a business that I work with is they've been sending me video messages, sometimes personalized ones. There's a bunch of services out there. So instead of sending a five sentence email, you you know, you send a 30 second video that says, hey, checking in on you, how are you doing today? I just wanted you to know I'm working on this and this and this. And again, hearing the voice, seeing the face, like what we're doing here with the podcast, that really makes a deeper connection. Yeah, and if I, just one, last anecdote you reminded me of, a few nonprofits that we work with uh, made a set of calls to their donors, small, medium, and big donors. And the purpose of the call back in March and early April wasn't to solicit funds, although they were increasingly desperate for them, but they just asked that very question. You just said, how are you? How's it going there? There was no ask. And what they found was in, in the case of one nonprofit, when several weeks later they sent out a request for donations talking about the hardship they faced, they had a much greater mm. response rate than they typically would. And even though their motives were pure when they made that initial phone call, they attribute the success of that uh, later fundraising appeal to checking in without something directly tied to it. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great um lesson there. And I wanted to to spin that now to talk about what other lessons brands might be able to take from this challenge that they're facing that might serve them well going forward. We talked about the authenticity. You talked about checking in with people. Do you, Are there any other examples you can think of that when we look back, hopefully soon, but let's say two, three, five years from now, we're going to say, wow, this is something that we were forced to do because of the crisis, but now look, it's actually improved the way we communicate, the way we do things. 
Yeah, I think you you raise a great point, which is I, I recently heard another uh, well-known chef, uh, Marcus Samuelson. He has uh, restaurants all over the, the world, uh, including famously Red Rooster in Harlem. And the point that he made was, and I'm paraphrasing him, that previously they were thought of as restaurants, places you went in and you got a meal. And the way they see themselves now and the way that others are starting to see them is as anchors of a community. And I think that question of what is your brand? Who are you? Are you a restaurant or are you an anchor of the community uh, that allows other small businesses near you to thrive? Are you a company that picks riders up and takes them from one destination to another? Or are you a sophisticated logistics company that in times of emergency are able to get emergency personnel and supplies where they're needed most? So I think it completely changes the way that companies see themselves, the story they tell both internally and externally, maybe even with recruiting, that people who want to be associated with something bigger than just a restaurant that serves food suddenly will will be drawn and feel compelled to support that brand because of those other what up to now have been considered extracurriculars. So I think that's one thing you're gonna see. I also think that one of the things you're seeing that is particularly important is making sure that the brand and the image you're going for are perfectly congruent. And you know, right now, as you surely know, the ESG movement to do environmental, social good, uh, brands are all looking for what can we do. And so when you have a company like McDonald's Brazil that goes out shortly after the coronavirus hits with advertising in Brazil where they separate the golden arches and the point is that we should socially distance but do it together. Uh, and then they immediately get pushback from people in their audience who are saying, wait a minute, you're paying these people low wages, they don't have the PPE, they need to remain safe. You can put out all of the branding you want, but you're not walking the walk. And I think whether it's Amazon who's faced similar pressure for uh, how they're treating their workers and warehouses, in some cases wanting to unionize and, and fire people to avoid that threat, um, what you're starting to see is audiences becoming increasingly sophisticated about what they expect from brands. Uh, and they don't want people latching on ESG because it's good uh, PR in the environmental movement. They call mm. it greenwashing, where you're trying to hijack a movement in order to get good PR value when your your internal ethics and standards aren't really living up to that. So this is not something new, but I think you're going to see the need for brands to tie their image to a cause much tighter than they ever have before. You got to walk the walk. You can't just talk the talk. Exactly. Like, you yeah. said in about a sentence what it took me a minute and a half to say. No, but your examples were really good because when I first saw that McDonald's logo and there were a couple other logos, I think Audi did one where they separated the rings in the logo and they, they were great ideas to help convey the message. But yeah, if they were solely to try to get screen impressions and they didn't really care about the underlying value, you know, it not only might not do much good, it might backfire. Like it sounds like it, it may have. Yeah. That's right. And you know, there are times that there's a win-win by which I mean a company can be trying to make money and, and survive while also doing something good for the public. An example of that is shortly after all of this hit, some of the major car brands came out with a twofer that was unprecedented. In some cases they would have 84 months of 0% interest if you buy a car and the first three or four months of payments waived. 
So obviously these car manufacturers are doing it because they have cars that are sitting going unpurchased. So they need right. to get these things off their lot. So there is of course self-interest for the car companies, but the value in that moment that they're uh, providing or the offer that they're making to people who are in need of a vehicle is significant enough. It's not like some tacky 10% off anything in our clothing supply store promotion that consumers said, okay, they're doing what they have to do, but they are offering something of real value to us. So it's not seen as opportunistic. Uh, but it does make the point that companies can act in their best interest too. It's not like they suddenly have to become altruistic uh, as long as they're seen as also acting mm -hmm. in the best interest of consumers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, you put it quite well, I like that. So before I ask you about your trademark history and some of the work we've done together, without of course revealing any <laughs> attorney-client privilege conversations, <laughs> no. Um, Tell me a little bit more about how you got into your, you know, media training and communication strategy business and, you know, why I, I know you enjoy what you do. I can see the passion in your writing. I subscribe to your newsletters, the passion in your voice today. How did you get into that and, and, and what do you love about it? My background is as a former journalist working with ABC News first and then for CNN and while I love journalism and the fast pace, it it wasn't the passion that you just described. It was something I enjoyed. I knew I was in privileged territory to be sitting in those newsrooms, but it wasn't the thing that lit me up. And it turns out what lights me up is uh, coaching people and helping them. And you know, for someone with a, a short attention span or maybe less self-effacing to say who likes learning a lot, a little bit about a lot of different things. Uh, it's very gratifying to work with uh, clients that uh, specialize in many different things. And, and one of the great things about media training or public speaking training is there's instant gratification in a lot of it. Because when you help somebody make a connection, when you help somebody articulate what it is that they do well in 15 seconds, when you help somebody answer a question that they were dreading receiving in a way that suddenly doesn't have any defensiveness, and if anything, uh, marries virtue into their answer and genuine commitment into it, and they see the that light bulb go off for themselves of, oh, here I am having been defensive for years about this, but I could lean in and be confident and feel good about the answer I'm giving. It's extremely gratifying. What I love about it for them too is it's not instant gratification. They walk out of a session, or in this case, out of a Zoom session, um, instantly being able to make a connection with something that's common sense. The moment it's said to them, they get it, they can act on it. And for a nonprofit, for example, it might mean more revenue, more income. For a government agency, mm -hmm. it might mean that they can pass a new policy. For a company, it might mean sales uh, or or personal development and growth. Um, so it's it, so that's what's the gratifying part that the connections are immediate. That's amazing, and it really strikes me as something that number one, almost everybody can use some improvement, right? A lot of people could use a lot of improvement, but <laughs> all of us could use some improvement. And it's really the thing where having an outside perspective really is even more valuable because you can help boil it down. You can help see it from the way the public might be seeing it or the adversary might be seeing it or the media might be seeing it. You're not, you're not stuck with the, you know, the, the, the internalized burdens that, that grow over time. So it's a really fascinating perspective. So I I, I want I can't let you go without taking a little bit of opportunity to ask you about why you sought out um, trademark protection for Throughline and for your prior businesses, 
and how that helped you in a couple different incidents that I'm aware of over time. Um, because I think that our listeners will also find that really valuable. This is a question I've been thinking a lot about. Um, and I think it, from a couple of different perspectives and at the risk of me being the one to break the privilege, which I think I can do, right? Um, we did have an incident earlier this year where a, a new competitor in the field had a, a very close to the same name uh, as, as my company. And uh, because of the trademark protection on the brand name, uh, what could have become something that was very contentious was something that was seen by the other party, I think, as so obviously black and white uh, that they backed off without the, the need for litigation, without the need for uh, unpleasantness. And Eric, I think one of the things, to your credit, that you've always been really great about guiding me through is, you know, I think some people have the stereotype of the lawyer and, and, and you're going to be hard-nosed and go after them. And I'm sure you will do that and, and can do that when there's a need. But the one thing that you've really coached me to remember is that we are ultimately just people dealing with people. And that the starting point for those conversations is just that. Make contact, talk to the other person. Uh, don't escalate as your first step. Let's see if uh, cool heads can prevail first and, and approach these things with goodwill before the need to escalate comes into the frame. I think the second thing, and this may be the, the more of the aha moment for me was, as a business owner, as somebody who has spent 15 years creating a brand and pouring you know, the blood, sweat, and tears that any entrepreneur right. might put into their own brand, I think the one thing I was unprepared for was how emotional this would all be. And when somebody steps on your brand, and this, as you said, has happened a few times over the past 15 years, um, it, it feels like you're being assaulted. It, it feels uh, the, the threat looms large and and you go through all of these things and, and maybe I'm projecting and I think everybody else goes through this, but you know, the sense that somebody has violated something that to you is sacred, something that to you you've been working on for many years. Um, and so that too, I think being having the counsel of a good attorney who can metaphorically hold your hand through that um, and kind of help you process the emotion while remaining laser focused on what your end goal is, is, is really important and something that when I filed for trademarks initially, I don't think I ever could have seen coming. I, I didn't understand that that would be part of the value proposition. And it turns out perhaps uh, it's the most important one. That's fascinating. And it is emotional. And it is something that I have to deal with good and bad, you know, in resolving or approaching issues all the time, because you have the emotions of two sides if you're trying to resolve a dispute, right? Um, and it's probably oversimplifying, but in the end, sometimes when you're trying to negotiate something, I will use the phrase like you have to remove the emotion from it. Um, but you can't, as a small business, you can't remove the emotion from it because like you said, that blood, sweat, and tears is part of how you got to where you are and the brand is all tied into that. And it's hard to untangle those things. It's, it would be impossible to untangle those things. But sometimes you set emotion a little bit to the side to look at the pragmatic, you know, solutions. Um, and that's, that's, you mentioned what makes your business rewarding. That's what makes my business rewarding is working with all different types of clients and learning about their industries, much like yours, but then seeing how important that brand protection 
can be to them and how meaningful it is when you resolve a dispute with a couple of emails instead of having to get involved in costly legal disputes mm -hmm. and resolve it before anybody else really knew about it, right? So it wasn't, you know, it was stressful at the time. I remember we spoke late in the evening several times um, because it was stressful, but it was far less stressful than it could have ended up being for sure, especially on the bank account, <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so you are, I mean, in essence, uh, an attorney slash therapist. <laughs> well, I'll just say counselor. <laughs> that, that, it all. Yep. There you go. Uh, so I hope that everyone's enjoyed listening to this episode of Tricks of the Trademark podcast. If you'd like to appear as a guest or you have suggestions for future guests that you'd like to hear, reach out to me on Twitter at TM for Small Biz or find me online. Brad, thank you so much for the conversation. Um, I, I know it was informative and valuable for me. I think it will be for the listeners too. Um, and where can listeners find out more about your work? Thanks. It was a pleasure joining you. Our website is throughlinegroup.com, T-H-R-O-U-G-H-L-I-N-E group.com. You've been listening to Tricks of the Trademark with me, Eric Pelton. I've been making trademarks bloom since 1999. For more information about my trademark services, visit my website at ericpelton.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.